Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Dr. Thomas Mengel. Thomas is Professor of Leadership Studies at the University of New Brunswick, Canada. He holds degrees in theology, adult education, history, and computer science. He has worked and consulted in project management and leadership in Europe, Asia, and North America. He is a proud member of the Association of Professional Futurists, the World Future Studies Federation, and the World Future Society, and he's published widely in academic journals, books, and in magazines across various disciplines and fields. In July this year, he edited and co-authored Leadership for the Future, Lessons from the Past, Current Approaches, and Future Insights. Welcome to FuturePod, Thomas. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So, Thomas, you've said you have listened to FuturePod, so you know the first question is the one that everyone enjoys, which is their story. So what is the Thomas Mengel story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Yeah, right. Uh, aren't we all story creatures? <laughs> on, on, on the other hand, you know, how do we really know uh, what the story is until the story is over, um, completed, right. fully lived yes. out? You know, one of my teachers or the people that I really learned from a lot was, was Auschwitz survivor Viktor Frankl. Oh, yes. And he once said that one's life's ultimate meaning can only be grasped on one's deathbed. Mm. Doesn't that sound morbid? Uh, but you know, it, the, the point really is in hindsight. Yes. Until then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping and thinking that uh, twists, turns, and surprises can still change the story. Uh, a colleague of mine who is actually teaching, and he in Fredericton too, he is a, a gerontologist, Bill Randall. He talks and writes uh, about what he say, calls restoring your life, and, and he encourages everyone. And uh, I, I take him up on that. Uh, encourages everyone to start the project at any point of one's life, uh, the project of restoring. Mm. So what I can do now is just you know, tell you parts of my story, how I currently see them, um, particularly in the context of my place in future studies and how I got here. One of the things I've noticed, Thomas, in the podcasts is that I haven't. I've never thought of it strongly about how significant it is for people to actually be able to tell your story. Yeah. As opposed to a lived internal monologue, to actually externalize and put your story in a kind of chronology or logic to another person. And I have actually noticed that for some of the guests, they often haven't explained who they are, where they've come from, as a kind of active process. Yeah, yeah. Is that kind of this notion of restoration as to how you want to tell your story of where you're from? I think it is. I think it is. The the way everyone tells their story, I think, and I've experienced, differs from time to time. Now, if it differs mm. all the time, then you're probably uh, suffering from some sort of, of uh, uh, personal uh, problem. But you know, we change the story with how we change and whenever we, we change. So, mm. you know, when I thought about this in preparation for this, uh, well, I used the one approach that, that often um, is being used, and that is start from where you are right now. Yeah. And, you, and you've already um, basically done that um, in, in the context of uh, future studies. 
you're really the most recent kind of uh, thing that I've done uh, with others is uh, publishing that book, Leadership for the Future, uh, just in July. That's probably what, what also uh, brought me to your attention. Anyway, so how did you, how did I get to to you know publishing this book? That's probably really what what you're after. You already mentioned you know, what what my my background is in terms of uh, being a historian, computer science theologian, and educator. I've managed businesses, created businesses, consulted businesses. I write a lot. I read even more. And my job of the past uh, sixteen years, uh, being a professor at uh, University of New Brunswick at a leadership school there. And that will be my job for, for another good year. One of the perks of, of being a professor is it actually allows you to do all kinds of things mm. that uh, you, you would not be able to do in any one job uh, altogether. The question, based on, on my education, the question of what does the future hold was, was always on my mind. In, in theology, we studied eschatology, which is really mm. you know, the signs of last things, the final development of mankind. The end times. The end times. And what might they look like? There's all kinds of different scenarios. Of course, they are not, not, not called that in, in, in the scriptures. And every religion brings their own uh, images of, of what that might look like into it. So you know, that, that certainly was there right in the beginning of my education. In history, I would like to, you know, I, I like to think that, among other things, uh, you look at dreams, vision, and values that made people do what they did and motivated them to to move forward. Finally, in, in education, computer science, uh, you know, for me, have driven me to imagine what world we want and how to get there. So, you know, it, it all kinds of uh, comes together in an interdisciplinary uh, way. Of course, when you live through that, when you study it and you ask those questions, you sometimes don't see those connections. That's, you know, part mm. of what I said earlier, you know, the picture becomes clearer, I think, in hindsight. There's been quite a few guests have trained in theology or studied in it before they've come to Futures. And I've noticed that for me, theology, apart from obviously the the belief side, is also a strong philosophical basis to how we reason, both in terms of logic and also the ethics and morals of action. It is. It, it certainly is. It, it also is a potential trap in terms of not just basis, but also bias. Mm would probably be another interesting story uh, to go into, and I'm just going to um, briefly touch on it. But you know, when I studied theology, um, I was a liberal, progressive, but uh, still a Catholic. Uh, I went through all kinds of different changes, and I would call myself now a, a spiritual um, atheist. <laughs> call it progressive Christian. Yep still being based on Christian values, but without the divine part of it. And and so yeah, it's 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 an important part, but it's also it was also an important part for me to realize how changing your belief system can open you up for very different kind of perspectives and makes you more careful to get stuck on one particular uh, philosophical basis. Mm, true. Anyway, so, you know, in addition to all that, uh, you know, there's the personal side, and, and uh, I've already mentioned uh, that, you know, my background is German. I, I grew up in Germany, and uh, Germans are, you know, one, one of the biases, um, true or not true, about Germans is that they're very organized and, and love to plan. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm no exception for that. 
I have created my own vision, mission documents and plans, life plans in my 20s and 30s. And that has resulted in strategic plans stretching over 50 years. And, and uh, some people laugh about that and, and, and just can't understand that. And when I tell my students who say, you know, I, I don't want to plan my life. I can't look mm. 10 years in, into the future. Uh, I tell them that and they just, you know, I don't know. They, they, they have a hard time connecting to that. But that's, you know, that's where I come from. There's this notion of serendipity and emergence right. and the yep. notion of the planned and, you know, I suppose you'd say directed. And it's an interesting notion that people think they're either or's rather than actually the two can quite happily coexist. Exactly, exactly. And, and it also, I think it takes some time to, to realize that. I certainly, at the beginning, was more on the planning side and the, mm. the uh, older I get, the more mature I get, the more people I meet, uh, the the more um, comfortable I am with. Uh, you know, let's just see. Um, but you know okay. what you see is still. I I believe I'm a firm believer in what you see. The opportunities that you see are very much affected by what you think about and plan uh, beforehand. If you don't, if you don't open yourself up in terms of your plans, you won't see certain things. Mm. And I've, I've seen many people who just say, I go uh, with the flow, and they just go with the flow that they are immediately in. So in the middle of the river, they are in that, in that stream, and they're fighting to survive, uh, you know, being driven in the stream. They don't see the big picture. They don't see how to get out of that stream. And, and, and mm. so you, know, you need both. I think you're totally right about that. Yeah, the other one too, I think, is uh, Ted Williams, the baseballer, used to say, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. <laughs> is that notion of... Yeah, that the more you work, that emergence can seem to be providential. Right, right. But it's actually right. You know, talking about a, a sport analogy, um, you know, Canadian idol in terms of uh, ice hockey, hockey, uh, Gretzky. He he once uh, has said that uh, a good player doesn't follow the puck or doesn't go where the puck is. He goes where the puck will be. Yeah, and and so you know, you, you need both. But actually, that brings me back to, or brings me closer to how I really got into the future studies field. And that was when, as a leadership scholar and educator, I realized that by the time that, you know, the students that, that I work with, uh, by the time that they will graduate and in, in, uh, increasingly take on leadership responsibility, the world will likely be very different. Mm. You know, exponential changes uh, currently disrupt almost everything everywhere. So when, when I, thought about that, I started to search for forward-looking futures-ready approaches of leadership, uh, because leadership is still very much uh, focused on you know what might help or what did help in the past and what, what does work in the present. But you know, again, with the uh, changes going on, that's just trying to catch up all the time. Mm. It's about five to six years ago that I started to really explore and engage in the foresight and future studies field. And networks. Peter Bishop was an early mentor mm-hmm. when when I introduced basic future studies approaches to my students. And uh, later, I started writing and publishing at the intersection of uh, leadership and future studies, um, and you know, working with colleagues globally to publish Leadership for the Future was just the final step of that. So, what is in the shortest possible, or sorry, in the sort of quickest way to describe? But what is the intersection and relationship of leadership to foresight? Uh, <laughs> is there just one intersection? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, for me, for me, it was. I think what I just explained in terms of my story, 
I came from all kinds of backgrounds, ended up, that's an, another story, ended up in leadership development, leadership teaching, leadership research. And uh, then you know, had to add something to it that made looking into the future, looking uh, forward more systematic, uh, not just, you know, mm. overcoming basically this idea of if we look uh, into the future, we're just using a, a crystal ball, and that's just not possible. Or the other extreme, we'll just look at trends and, and just project them into the future. Um, and, and we know in future studies, that's the, that's just two very narrow perspectives of, of what we all look at. So the, the intersection of leadership and, and the future, in my words, would be that um, you know, leadership can be described as helping organizations, helping each other to move from where you are to where you want to be. Mm. So this is always a forward-looking, visionary kind of activity. And using the the frameworks, tools, and approaches of future studies just makes sense to to, to base your looking forward onto something and to be able to say, you know, what we do is methodical. It's not uh, using a crystal ball. Um, there's a methodology, there's a framework, there's an ontology, uh, epistemology. Uh, there's different ones, of course, you know, different people use different ones, but you can argue about those things and you have almost like studying any other field. Um, you have a foundation, a knowledge base, uh, that helps leadership educators, leadership practitioners to to be systematic about moving from where they are to where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Is there a tension to the history side of it? In other words, you talk about being forward-facing in terms of where we wish to go and and where we are. Obviously, history is the other part of it because to some extent where we are is how we led previously. Exactly, exactly. How does leadership do the learning side, the double loop and triple loop learning to understand that where I am is to some extent the product of how I led previously? It is uh, certainly related to that, but, but I would be very careful to say that everything is kind of limited by where we come from. It is certainly informed by where we come from, but um, you know, we have we have all kinds of opportunities to to acknowledge where we come from and still distance ourselves uh, in in some way. Or you're know, coming back to to Frankel. Uh, at some point, he said, "We all sort of are constrained by gravity. You know, when when we walk, when we move, which is a major part of of living, is moving. A major part of of leadership is moving." So we are limited or affected by gravity, but we can still hop and dance. We can fly into space. The analogy to that would be to say it's very good and important to know your history. To some extent, we're still hoping that by by understanding where we come from, by understanding our history, we might be more innovative and in making new mistakes rather than repeating old ones. <laughs> <laughs> So you know it is important to to understand where you come from. You understand your your identity, the factors that that uh, forged your your way, your story. But also to understand that the story is open, uh, like the future is open. Mm. And so history is important. Um, you know, I, I really am glad that I have history as as one of my um, backgrounds, as one of my uh, areas of expertise. 
but I also have experienced myself personally how um, you know th- these kind of histories can be overcome where they start to burden you, uh, can mm. be opened up where they start to limit you. I don't know whether that, that fully answers your question. History is important, but it is not the only thing. You're looking backwards uh, is not the only thing. And, and when you look at Sharmer, I think, has, has said you know, that uh, in the light of exponential change and the challenges um, that we face currently and in the future, uh, there's really three different ways we can, um, you know, we can try to paddle back, backwards, to the uh, alleged good old days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, good old, yeah, good old days. You can you can try to muddle through, but really you're putting your eyes on the road and and trying to solve the problems one by one in the present and or and I wouldn't say just or. I think you need all three of those in your in your toolbox. But the the major kind of framework for me has become to to be able to uh, you know, leap forward, to look forward, and to see based on what you have experienced in the past, based or living with or seeing what you what you see now in terms of the challenges, what options are there to open this up? What what may be dancing moves to overcome um, you know, gravity or or what might be way to fly away without without uh, you know forgetting um, what the past has challenged us with or without just ignoring those kind of mm. historic and, and present kind of uh, uh, developments and problems. Thanks, Thomas. So second question, we've already ranged over about seven or eight possible frames, but as you know, question two, I like the guest to explain a framework, philosophy, approach, stance to the listeners that is central to how they do their work. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? Yeah, well, as you, as you probably already can tell, you know, storytelling, story reading, narratives are, are very important to me. And the colleague that I already talked about, Bill Randall, his most recent book was In Our Stories Lie Our Strengths. Mm. So storytelling narratives, creating narratives, understanding, interpreting narratives of others are really important to me. And and I think they're important for co-creating a meaningful future uh, that we are aiming for. That's one of the aims of of, uh, people working in that field. Narratives that we create for various scenarios that we imagine that we develop with others for various potential and sometimes even preposterous futures are key to, to, I think, imagining what preferred futures might look like. So uh, these kind of things go hand in hand, storytelling, story reading, developing stories um, with each other are, are number one, but they also go hand in hand with uh, scenarios and the, the idea of uh, future scones. And, and you mentioned something earlier, Peter, which I really liked and which recently has um, you know, been discussed in uh, various uh, presentations and, and, and writings, and that is adding to the future scone perspective into the past and into the present. So, you know, this back and forth mm-hmm. and interrelationship between things in the past and the present and the future. But anyway, you know, this looking forward, uh, in, in the book, in, my, in one of my chapters, I actually call that future's being to just highlight that 
uh, it's something that we switch on and off, or that we can switch on and off. It's not something that is there in terms of uh, you know, a reality necessarily. It's a it's a tool to look into the future, into the futures. So when we when we do that and and identify different kind of ideas and scenarios that will help us create stories around what might be, you know, out of those things that might be, what do we want to do? So, uh, you know, foresight, anticipation, projection, imagination, all of that, I think, allows us to picture what might be possible in various future uh, futures, and they help us identify and, and develop those uh, scenarios. Mm. And then, of course, you know, it's not a solitary process. It's highly participatory process. Yeah. Storytelling is talked about with anthropologists and brain scientists about they think that that was, you know, the whole sort of social aspect of storytelling was one of the major factors that the actual construction of the brain. Yeah. Are we as a species naturally good storytellers or are there things that we maybe should do to become better storytellers for what you're talking about? Yeah, that's that's an exciting question. Many of us are. Um, but many of us have to learn it. Um, you know, the first time I really started thinking about that uh, was in the context of, of leadership. I'm you know, just looking at my, uh, my bookshelf there, and, and there's a couple of, of volumes that have to do with that. Um, people that Deming, I think, was one of the authors who mm. um, led the way there, who talked about uh, leaders as storytellers. And the idea behind that was that we cannot excite people by simple facts, the facts that we you know need them to understand and to base their decision making on have to put into a story that's meaningful to the people that we want to move by the story. Uh, and the pandemic is is a case in point. You know, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, public policy and and health measures and resistance and different waves and how we deal with those. The lockdowns and the measures around that are directly related to the narratives that have been used or have uh, you know, we failed to use to convince people to do what needed to be done from the perspective of the experts. So experts are not necessarily good at storytelling. Mm. They're good at fact-finding. What are the essences of telling stories that move people? I mean, you've said it's not facts, so it's something else that's in the story that causes people to pay attention and get excited. What is the thing that has to be injected into the process? Uh, that, yeah, that, that is a good question. Again, you know, I think if you ask different people, there might be different answers. But but apparently, if you look at stories that work in the in the sense of literary stories, uh, you know, novels, um, bestsellers. What is in those is, is a compelling mix of a set of characters that you can identify with. Mm. Those characters experiencing some sort of challenge or a set of challenges uh, that uh, that are exciting to follow, and then to see how they deal with that, uh, how how they overcome those challenges. You know, the the hero's story is a, is a typical pattern, mm. but it's just one. Then, if you look at at the more literary pieces of writing, you know it's not necessarily the same kind of story arc that sometimes just follows a simple kind of a pattern uh, that is successful. The art of writing also has to do with drawing people in at the moment. You know, catching 
what they deal with in their thinking and feeling at the moment, then slowly, you know, guiding them to follow the development of a certain character of a certain plot. There's an aspect of the story we tell ourselves of who we are, which is, I think, different to what you're talking about, which is externalizing and telling story for people to to identify with and be part of. And I'm particularly, again, aware of Frankel's work and, and his recognition of the work in the prison camps about the necessity to do good, yeah. to be altruistic as a futures-directed strategy. It yeah. was the people who just cared for people yeah. who seemed to manage the process better than people who look for salvation at Christmas time or the next year or the next year. Yeah, you're totally right. In, in uh, one of my chapters, I spend a lot of time explaining, uh, describing, uh, harvesting um, Frankl's thoughts, how they can play out in, in leadership, how they affect or inform uh, the, 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 the future studies work that I do. And, and you know, Frankl has a very simple, that doesn't sound right, but in, in some way it is a simple answer. You have to find something in life that is more than just yourself. Hmm. In, in a more sort of elaborate way, he, he identifies three different dimensions of uh, discovering meaning, of, of discovering values that, that um, move your life forward. Uh, the first one being you know, finding something in your work which is meaningful to you, doing something that is sim- uh, meaningful. And that can be as simple as producing th- something that is of, of meaning to you. So if you love pieces of art, then you, you, you produce pieces of art. If you are a carpenter, then producing a piece of woodwork that is functional and aesthetic uh, is, is meaningful, and, and so forth. And the second dimension is experiencing something as meaningful. The simple um, example is love. Uh, so the first one in general, uh, Frankl often calls the dimension of work doing something meaningful. Hmm. The second one, he, he uh, you know, simplifies, summarizes by saying love, but it's really more in, in the sense of workplace leadership. It is finding oneself in relationships that one uh, experiences as meaningful, creating meaningful uh, relationships and, and uh, being, uh, being aware of that. For some people, it's uh, a relationship with nature, with beautiful sunset, mountain range, being on the walk and hike and, and, and those kind of things. And the third one, probably the most difficult one to translate from where he was originally coming from, uh, being a psychiatrist and psychologist, is uh, what he calls uh, attitudinal uh, values, uh, values that you know, come to the forefront originally in his, in his uh, explanation when you can't do anything anymore that is meaningful, if you can't experiencing, uh, experience anything anymore that is meaningful. So the typical example is somebody who is uh, terminal, uh, terminally ill, uh, you can't move anymore and, and can't really relate to people, but they can still have different attitudes. And he found that those people who develop, who are able to develop an attitude of uh, gratitude, just to use one example, or not gratitude for the situation that they are in, but gratitude for something else, or for the way that they look at it for life that they probably had before, and, and so forth. There's, there's uh, tons of examples for that. That's the third dimension. And in the context of work and, and leadership, you know, some colleagues and, and, and I found that's a, a good dimension to translate into 
developing, uh, experiencing a crisis that that you find yourself in. Uh, you know, all those ex- uh, exponential changes that we are um, exposed to now, and that uh, frighten us, that that uh, make us really feeling terrorized almost, are challenges that we can only uh, overcome to some extent if we find a way to reinterpret them. And that's not just Frankl. Um, you know, others have, have interpreted that as, as a new kind of framing that people um, have to find. And, and so those three dimensions are important and they become important stories. So the story about what I do, the story about uh, who I do it with, uh, and, and the story about what I think about what I'm doing and how it makes sense even in the light of, uh, of challenges. Thanks, Thomas. Third question, Thomas Mengel, human being. What's the futures that you're sensing around you that get you excited, that have your attention, that have you thinking? And what are the emerging things around you that possibly give you pause and maybe even give you concern? But what are you paying attention to? I have to come back to narratives. I just love narratives. So I, I start. I, I try to read as much as I can about different narratives and scenarios being explored. How do these inform and influence uh, you know the, the world, how I see it, and that I live in? And of course, you know, I've been in higher education now for sixteen years, so I'm extremely interested in you know, where is higher educa- education going, and mm. how does the practice resist certain developments that to me, are very clear in the sense of, um, and I give you an example of, in the pandemic, it was it was really interesting to see that all the majority of people who were saying personal education is the way to go, just uh, let's stay away from online learning. This is just uh, out of the can education, and it, it, it misses a personal factor. Uh, all of them, all of a sudden, had to switch to online learning. All of a sudden, online learning was no longer that outlier, mm. either uh, being very positively looked at as the technological future of learning or very negatively looked at as something that I, as an educator, don't want to have anything to do with. Mm. You know, I've, I've always uh, enjoyed uh, online learning, did my computer science degree, a major part of that uh, on, on distance learning. So I've, I've learned to uh, appreciate the the positive things of that so i'm i was interested to see you know how does that change and one of the frustrating things is to see that we are bouncing back or bouncing forward <laughs> from the pandemic it really is often a bouncing back oh now that we can open up everything again let's move back to how we did things before rather than yeah. saying okay how can we integrate what we've done before and what really worked well into something that we now have been pushed to deal with and sort of uh, find a symbiosis that that really works. So that's something that I'm extremely interested in, but but that also frustrates me because I can see people just paddling backwards uh, rather than, you know, surfing the, the, the waves of, of, of chaos and then moving forward. What is the next hybrid of physical and online that you think could be starting? 
Well, you know, so there's a couple of things that, that I think will work together and that we already started working on. I've actually um, described that in more detail in a recent essay in, that was published in Human Futures in uh, just this past August, where, where I imagined, you know, higher education might go in, in 20 years and you know, increasing virtualization, um, increasing elements of play and gaming highly dynamic interconnected worlds of learning will will certainly i think disrupt our still strong focus on traditional and i i think us unsustainable brick and mortar educational institutions yeah i mean you know there's millions of professors doing the same things at hundreds and thousands of different locations i just start with myself you know i'm i might be good at some things but in in a basic education and in my uh, lectures and seminars I have to do all the things that students could probably get in a much better quality somewhere else. You know, some students already move into that direction. They they pick and choose accordingly. And mm. um, I've heard from students say, you know, why why should I? Why do you make me? They haven't asked me that, but uh, you know, they say, why why is somebody making me sit in a lecture? that I can get in a much more engaging way without having to pay for it from one of the top professors at any kind of university. Uh, it doesn't have to be Harvard, but there are a couple of really good colleagues doing uh, fantastic work. But right now, it's almost unthinkable unless you know I have a little section in my lecture where I have this uh, video included, but it's unthinkable at this point still to have that interconnectedness that's just fluid and, and open when you know we do have uh, as many universities in Australia too we have different different campuses and even for one student to move from one campus to the other to take a program at the other campus or to take a lecture at the other campus for some of my colleagues that's unthinkable oh no 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 he didn't do x or he didn't study uh, y the way that i teach it so i can't give him credit for that we have to get away from that yeah. um, education in the future will be much more student-centered we talk about student-centeredness but we are far from i think where it needs to go it has to include you know those technological uh, availabilities that that are developing virtual reality uh, gaming uh, we can we can visit places that, that we don't have to fly to. Uh, you know, we, there's marvelous programs where you can visit muse museums and, and do virtual uh, walk-arounds in those museums. They don't fully replace the in-person um, experience, but just imagine what they could do to people who would never be able to afford to uh, travel to those places at, at a certain point. Maybe we don't need as many universities delivering roughly the same thing. Maybe we need a lot less. But of course, you know, if you look at any kind of university, mine is not a an exemption of that. There is a mandate for for the administrators to keep the institution going and to not ask the question: Might we be uh, superfluous, or might we be better off merging some of the institutions? You know. In our province, we have 750,000 people living. That's ridiculous compared to um, you know, big cities in, in, in Canada and in Australia, anywhere. 750,000 in the whole province. And we have, I think I did the count at one point, we have more than 10 different higher education institutions. Thanks, Thomas. Fourth question, the communication question. So one that's always of interest to people who are starting out in the field. 
How do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as a, as a professor of leadership studies, I'm I'm really used to people wondering about what it is I really do. Both my parents, <laughs> who who have uh, you know now, now passed away, had difficulties explaining to others you know what what their son was doing. Um, and and <laughs> all that was important to my father really was that he proudly shared with anyone who would listen that his son was That's a right. professor. And, That's you know, right. Enough said. You don't have to explain any further. He's a professor, so that that was good enough. But seriously, you know, since I, I added that label futurist to my my uh, professional signature, uh, when when asked by people, you know, what, what do you mean by that? I tell them that I read and write stories about the futures, mm. and I make a point to say, yes, it's futures plural. Mm. You know, when they ask about what, and then then we have a conversation. I tell them my story. Uh, just like I did in our conversation today, and and about my reading and writing about the futures, and and I think they get that it's you know it's for me it's about storytelling, narratives, scenarios, imagine uh, what the future might look like, and and um, I just briefly mentioned the course that I just developed and taught for the first time over the summer, uh, foresight and and leadership. I really enjoyed that a third of the reading. You know, I, I used the introduction by Gidley, and I used the knowledge base. And um, the third part was a big major novel by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, the the Ministry for the Future, and just that that just came out. And and uh, uh, I was I was curious how students would take that. Would they take it seriously? Would they enjoy that? And uh, you know, the students that I heard that gave me feedback on that. They said they really enjoyed that because all of a sudden, the stuff that they read in in the textbooks and in the methodology and the frameworks and and in the sometimes difficult to read chapters in in the knowledge base, all of a sudden made sense to them. Hmm. Robinson has made a good point um, to... In in describing not the faraway future like he's done in, in many of his other novels, but to look at something that is about to happen and you know the b- book just came out and all of a sudden we had uh, fires everywhere we had mm. floods everywhere so people could directly relate to that and and it's uh, it's fantastic because it's a narrative about what somebody else imagines as how the future can pan out and you know he, he draws it out a couple of decades and imagines how uh, institutions might deal with it how the world economy might respond to that. Those are very impressive, compelling examples of of, of what we do, at least what I do in terms of uh, my, my work in, uh, in that field. Thanks, Thomas. So we're at the last question. I'd love to hear some more about the book. So, yeah, published in July this year. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think I said already how I, I got to that. And in, in about two and a half years ago, I uh, just pitched it to a publisher saying, oh, this is what I could imagine doing. And I don't want to do it uh, all alone. I want to have different perspectives mm. in that. And, and they, they, they jumped on it. And uh, so we started this process of using, you know, I use my networks, all those different uh, futures organizations, and people responded. And we ended up with uh, 20 authors, you know, from around the globe who present, explore, and discuss different approaches from multidisciplinary, multicultural, and planetary perspectives uh, for the for the 21st century. 
They embrace you know, a variety of diverse values, cognitive maps, definitions, frameworks. So it's not following one particular epistemology or ontology. I think every author brings in somewhat their own, which I which I really uh, enjoyed, which I think is an important part of it. Is it enough diversity? I think you can never have enough. At some point, you just need to decide, you, know, you stop here, put it out there, and then somebody else will bring it to the next level and, and, and you need to let it go. That's also part of, of I think, you know, what we do is grabbing stuff, but also being able to let go and then let it develop further uh, with the help of others. Mm. And so it's, it's a mixture also of, of you know, uh, focus on, on the practice of leadership for, in and for the future, practical guidelines, but also some more theoretical framework kind of, uh, of approaches. And I think you you mentioned the subtitle, which is kind of giving the overall summary, uh, lessons from the past, current approaches, and uh, future insights. And the future insights I wasn't extremely happy about. They just made me, uh, you know, shorten the subtitle. Um, I I wanted to include uh, something like uh, insights from uh, future studies and foresight, but that just became too long. So Mm. future insights, it became... And I could live with that. So you know, in, in the first part, we really uh, describe the development of leadership theory and models and try to harvest lessons from the past that may inform leadership models that are futures ready. And we look at uh, the research about uh, different approaches to leadership and then try to, to, to take it from there. The second part explores what I call the value shift. In, in current approaches of leadership, where all of a sudden different values move into the foreground and I think have contributed to what I call an equalization of leadership, both in theory and, and practice. And uh, the third part, uh, you know, that's really where we draw from the field of future studies and foresight to present and explore different approaches for what leadership in and for the future might look like. What was the most surprising future insight? What what really was surprising to me, because there was, you know, there was a bit of anxiety at the beginning. So how different will everything be? And how will I put that all together in one book that kind of presents a story with an arc yeah. somewhat, you know, that people keep on reading, uh, although this is not a book that you necessarily read from the from, from cover to cover, but there, there should be a, a story arc. And you know, surprising to me was that it was not that difficult. It was it was really um, still making sense at the end. And the the final chapter in there is uh, about co-creating uh, meaningful futures together. Mm. Uh, and that was not something where I had to tr- make you know, twist arms or anything. It just uh, naturally flowed out of what um, the different authors focus on and you know of course you know i then thought maybe that's wishful thinking of the editor but that's one of the feedback that i got from from uh, co-authors too who uh, then read the whole book at the end and said you know it was really amazing to see how everything kind of fit together and Mm -hmm. it's not a complete mosaic there's so many pieces in there that are missing and that we could add if we kept on writing that was one of the surprising pieces that it made sense at the end. It it flowed together uh, well, and you know, of course, I'm I'm tooting my own horn here, but uh, that was one of the surprises in terms of the content. I you know, I think if you read up on what what uh, future studies uh, currently is doing and producing, and it is a very exciting field, but it's a field where you still 
almost know all the players or most of the players, and you can still somewhat follow what they are right about. In that sense, it was not so surprising. What what I you know, another interesting question: What would you have done had you known it before? What would you have included and didn't? And one of the things that I was sad about missing was that particular uh, trend that I talked about earlier, where where we now, in uh, the context of the futures cone, uh, talk more about the um, necessity of including the the past perspective. You know, most of the of the futures cones in the in the sort of traditional <laughs> traditional writing of future studies uh, really just look forward mm. but in recent publications over the last year or so this other perspective came in so that was you know surprising to me or uh, sort of uh, uh, disappointing to me that I was not able that we were not able to include that but there's also have always have to be reason for another book to come out that's right I was going to say there's always time for another book yeah Look, Thomas, thanks. It's been great fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for taking some time out to have a chat with the FuturePod community. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for having me. It was uh, insightful and it's always surprising. You know, you think about it beforehand, but then how the conversation develops is always a pleasant surprise. It certainly was uh, in, in the conversation with you, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.